you haven't noticed already, it's a little bit of a special Sunday. We're kind of doing like an end of the summer kind of party vibe. And so our kids are at Sunday Fun Day, and they have slip and slide kickball. And uh, it, it's exactly how it sounds. It's awesome. And, and then also right after service, we're going to have uh, uh, some tacos. And then we set snow cones. And then our snow cone truck called us this morning and said our battery's dead. But don't worry. We went to Smart and Final, and we got lots of popsicles and stuff like that. So you're welcome. Uh, it should be fun. It's going to be fun. Uh, there are only two books of the Bible that bear the name of women. Esther, which we talked about two weeks ago, and the book of Ruth. And Ruth is the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. And there are some weird parts to this story, okay? Really weird. Uh, but the story's so honest. It's so honest. And my four-year-old son, Dex, doesn't know how to not be honest. He's, he's brutally honest. And uh, last week, my wife went out of town for a couple of days, so I had both of the kids. And we had a great time, and, you know, I kept him busy, and, and uh, I was very tired. But it was, it was an awesome, awesome time. So then my wife, she is missing them like crazy. She's only gone a couple of days, but she is missing him like crazy. She gets home, and she's talking with Dex, our four-year-old. And she's like, Dex, Dex, did you have fun with Dad, or did you miss Mom? And then she, did, she knew she wasn't going to like the answer there. So then she says, or did you have fun with Dad and miss Mom? And he goes, no, 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 not both. I just had fun with dad. <laughs> it was amazing. It was the greatest moment of my life. No, mom, not both. I just had fun with dad. So we're going to get brutally honest with the Bible this morning, and we're going to get brutally honest about our lives. Ruth chapter 1, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Uh, now, this is just the very first verse, and this is a nod to the reader saying that these were crazy times in Israel, okay? Everyone did as they saw fit. If you were to just flip your Bible back one page to the last part of Judges, it says that everyone did whatever they wanted, okay? This is Mardi Gras, Vegas, spring break, all rolled into one, okay? This is Hebrews gone wild. It's, it's all bad. Then it says, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So there's this famine in Israel because Hebrews gone wild and God wants his people to repent. And instead of repenting, Elimelech moves his family to a better economy. Uh, he provides food for his family, but that's, we're not called to just provide food, right? The question isn't, where can I make the most income? The question is, where can my family flourish? And for Elimelech, and for us, it is among the people of God. He made a practical decision, making judgments on the basis of practical reason alone is not a sound way to discern the will of God, especially when it came to Moab. Moab, any Israelite reading this book would just, you know, red lights would go off in their head right, right away. Why in the world did he move to Moab? The Moabites are always painted in a negative light to Israel. They're Lot's descendants, and they're the offspring of Lot, here's one of the weird parts, and his daughter, okay? So the Moabites started in incest, and now there's all kinds of bad stuff going on. They worship the false god Chemosh, and it appears 
it doesn't appear that God's will for them is to go to Moab, but rather to stay among the people of God and repent. What should have been a spiritual decision for Elimelech and his family became a practical decision when he moves his family to Moab. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech moves his family to Moab so they wouldn't die, and then what happens? They all die. Naomi lost everything. With no husband or son to take care of her, she's left vulnerable to the violent world that she's surrounded by. Now, many widows would have no respectable way of making an income, and so they're forced to rely on charity or worse, prostitution or slavery. Naomi thus finds herself in triple jeopardy, a woman without a family in a foreign country. So Naomi hears that God's favor had returned to Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and that there is now crops and the famine is over. And she sees that that is her only chance of survival. So she tells her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, who are now widows as well, stay among your people. You're young. You're pretty. Go find a new husband. They'll take care of you. And it took some convincing, but Orpah says, okay, fine, I'll leave you. And then Orpah stays among her people, and she's not mentioned again through our story. Ruth, on the other hand, wasn't easily deterred. Verse 16 says this, But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Naomi's other daughter-in-law, Ruth, doesn't want Naomi to be ruthless. See what I did there? (laughs) And so she insists on staying with Naomi. This Moabite daughter-in-law stays with Naomi. This is like her conversion experience to the Hebrew God. And these two women make the long trek, the 30-mile trek back to Bethlehem. Ruth says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth left everything that she's ever known to take care of her widowed mother-in-law. Our story begins with Ruth choosing love and loyalty over common sense, insisting that she accompany Naomi on her journey of sorrow back to Bethlehem. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, the people start saying, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? And just the pronouncing of her name struck a chord with Naomi. Her name means pleasant or happy. And so she says, no, 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 don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because God has turned his back towards me. We just sang, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down. If ever there was a time where God let someone down, it's where, right here, right? Her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. She's poor. She's broken. She's a widow. You're never going to let me down? No, no, no. Call me bitter. I'm not happy. I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. We move to chapter 2. It says this, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain left behind and whose eyes I find favor. Ruth's life is not going well, okay? She's at the community food bank and uh, uh, 
she's not from the right family. She's, she's not, not from the right faith. She's not a virgin, which is a big deal back then. But she's also not throwing a pity party. If ever there was a, a, an opportunity for someone to focus in on the negative things in her life, it was this time. But that's not what she does. She's single. Not only that, she's a package deal with a bitter old woman. Okay? Her dating profile is a picture of her smiling and then a bitter old woman in the back. Okay? <laughs> Yet we see in verse 2 that uh, Ruth essentially says, there's nothing really good in my life right now, but there will be, and I'm going to find it. I will go and find favor. That's faith. Faith doesn't say, well, when God shuts a door, he opens a window. Or the setback is the beginning of the comeback. No, she's not ignorant to the fact that things are negative, but she doesn't focus in on that. She's not saying everything is fine, but she's trusting in the character of God. And she says, I will go and find favor. I'm going out there. I'm not going to wait for it. I'm going to find it. If you are uh, in circumstances at this moment that are pretty rough, pretty dire, and you're like, God, where are you? Don't mope. Hope. Don't, don't feel sorry for yourself, although it's natural and it's also understandable. It just doesn't help you move forward. It actually brings you back. It takes you further away from where you need to be, where you want to be, where God's called you to be. So Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter. Naomi says, go on, girl. You go, girl. So she went out, entered a field, and began to clean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, the Hebrews had a law instructed uh, by God to uh, glean for the poor. And what this means is, is that whenever a harvest comes and everyone's picking all the crops, they would say, don't go over it a second time. Leave that for the homeless and the poor among you. And so uh, it's, Naomi's very intentional about not having any food in Moab. She goes, well, if the people of God, I can at least glean. There's provisions for the poor there. This shows that God has a heart for the poor, even back in the Old Testament. Don't go over it a second time. Leave it for the poor and needy among you. Gleaning is a practice for the poor. It shows God's heart for the poor. You can harvest your crops, but the margins are for the marginalized. Don't go over it a second time. Don't get greedy. Take care of those around you. So even back in the Old Testament, we see God wanting to take care of the poor and needy. So Ruth begins to glean in a field, and the Bible says, as it turned out, she happened to be gleaning in the field of Boaz. That's like saying, as luck would have it, or as fate would have it. It's a Hebrew wink to say, God's hand is involved here. This is providence. And we don't see providence through the windshield. We only see it in the rearview mirror right? We're going through something. We're like, there's no way God can do anything good in this circumstance right now. And then years go by and we go, I can see it now. I can see how God moved me. I can see how God used that terrible circumstance to somehow bring me to this uh, promised land, to this good place. So Ruth's gleaning in the field, and the boss man, Boaz, shows up. He's the owner of the company. He's a man of standing, the Bible says, and he's kind to her. He shows favor to her. The very thing that Ruth said, I will go and find, Boaz shows to her. And thus far, there's not even a hint of romance yet. 
okay? But Boaz does have two things going for him. He loves the, he loves the Lord, and he has a job, okay? Young men, write that down. <laughs> this is what women are looking for. Love the Lord, get a job. So Ruth gets home, and she tells Naomi about this generous man named Boaz. And here's where the story gets weird, okay? And I'm just going to read it so that you guys don't think I made this up, okay? Ruth chapter 3, it says this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. After he's had a few glasses of wine, okay? It's what it, it says what you think it says. Verse 4, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, in the Hebrew language, this is much more ambiguous. Naomi instructs Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet or to uncover herself at Boaz's feet. It's ambiguous. We're not sure. But the, the sexual innuendos here are raging. And then after you do that, and the Bible says this, after you lay down at his feet and uncover him, or uncover yourself at his feet, say, he will tell you what to do. <laughs> what? He'll tell, I bet he will. That's the problem, right? <laughs> How many of you parents, if you have a daughter, would tell them, well, get all done up, okay? Wait until he's camping and he's had a few beers. And then when he falls asleep in his tent, lay down next to him in the sleeping bag. And when he rolls over, you whisper, tell me what to do. This is in the Bible. It's also, at best, very questionable counsel by Naomi, correct? Very questionable. Now, there are lots of ways that Bible scholars and pastors try to smooth this story over to make Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi all look like saints throughout the entire encounter. But you got to do some theological gymnastics to make that happen. I don't think it's necessary. You see, the Bible often is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's telling you what happened, not what to do if you were in the same situation. This part of the Bible, I believe, is prescriptive. It's telling us what happened. No, I lied to you. Descriptive. <laughs> don't do this. It's descriptive. It's telling you what took place. God is allowing us to struggle through the bad advice. Now, why would Naomi give Ruth these instructions? Well, she wanted something good for her daughter-in-law, right? She wanted a husband and a home, but she wanted it on her terms. She felt like she had to manipulate circumstances so she could achieve her goals. She felt like she had to do it herself by using her own wits and cunning. She did what she saw her dead husband do, take things into their own hands where, where he should have stayed with the people of God and repented, he picks up and, and goes, I'm going to take care of this situation myself. I'm going to take us to Moab, and they've got food there. You see, Naomi was depending on herself. Now, Boaz has only ever seen Ruth 
in her peasant clothes, like gleaning in the fields, like all pitted out, right? Uh, And so Ruth does what Naomi, Naomi asks. And now it's extreme makeover Moab edition, okay? Moabite edition. Get all prettied up. She gets all done up. She goes to the place where Boaz is. And Boaz here is counting his prophets. The threshing floor was the place where you would count your prophets at the, at the harvest. So there's this big stack of all the prophets of this business owner. And he's counting it. And then he crashes and falls asleep on it because he's trying to protect it as well. He's protecting his investment. He's protecting his prophets. And so what's going to happen? Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking... And was in good spirits. That's a wink, okay? Good spirit. He was feeling it. <laughs> he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet, okay, ninja like. Or uncovered herself at his feet, and she lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Uh, Boaz here, he's single. As far as we know, he had never been with a woman. He's tired. He wakes up in the middle of the night after the harvest season, in the middle of nowhere. No one's around. And there at his feet lies an uncovered, beautiful woman. Do you know what kind of guy would be tempted in this scenario? The kind that breathes. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Everybody will be tempted by this scenario. Boaz says, who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This is an ancient Hebrew way for Ruth to express her intentions. Now, she's, she's not saying marry me. She's saying it would be okay and I would be all right with you marrying me, okay? This is so bold for 3,000 years ago. This is so bold for today, right? Ah. Uh, For a Moabite woman to invite a Hebrew man to propose marriage. For a homeless gal to invite a wealthy business owner to propose marriage. For a woman who cleans from a field to invite the owner of that field to propose a marriage. This is bold. This is courageous. This is brave. What's Boaz going to do? Now we find out that Boaz really is a man of standing. Boaz here is not looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. And if you're looking for a good time, that will always circumvent a good legacy. He's alone with a beautiful woman under the cover of night. But he's not interested. So Boaz, he is flattered by Ruth. And he says, in essence, I've noticed you as well. And he goes on promising to do everything that Ruth has asked because she is a woman of standing. The very word used to describe Boaz and his character He says, everybody knows, Ruth, you are a woman of standing. You're a a woman of character. This is such a turn of events, right? In chapter 3, Ruth was dumpster diving behind this guy's restaurant. And in chapter 4, he's in love with her. It's beautiful. It's a Cinderella story of the Old Testament. His test becomes his testimony. He's thinking big picture, not momentary pleasure. Now, there's so much in the story of Ruth that is helpful for us in navigating the crazy world of love, sex, and dating in our culture. Uh, We discover that Ruth and Naomi both see something in Boaz's character as a man of standing that is true and wonderful and godly. He provided for Ruth. Uh, He he was generous towards her. He, He loved God first. He was a man of character. He respected her. To all the girls who are in a hurry in this place, all you single ladies out here, 
you're in a hurry to have a boyfriend or get married. Here's a piece of biblical advice. Ruth pursued Boaz because of his character. She was drawn because of his character. She didn't settle. So while you're waiting on your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke ass, lion ass, cheating ass, dumb ass, and especially his third cousin drunk ass, okay? Make sure he respects your ass. Can I say that in church? I'm not sure. We can edit that out of the video later. Back to our story. Boaz says to her, the feeling's mutual. The feeling's mutual. I want to marry you as well. But there's one legal obstacle before we get married. There is one relative of yours that has a higher right to marry you than I am, than I have. But tomorrow I'll speak with him, and I will tell him that I want to redeem you. You see, a widow in the Hebrew culture uh, uh, would often then marry a, a close relative of the, of the father or the deceased husband so that the, the family name could carry on and that someone could t- eventually take care of the widows and the women among them. Boaz was number two in line. Some other guy, we don't know his name, was number one. And so Boaz says, tomorrow I'll find number one. I'll find the guy ahead of me. And we're going to have a conversation. So in chapter 4, he, Bo, we find Boaz at the place where men do business. And the text says, uh, guess who happens to walk by? Again, another Hebrew wink. It's, it's relative number one. And so Boaz goes up to him and goes, hey, 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 excuse me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Naomi, Elimelech's uh, widowed wife, is back. And um, I know she has some land and some property. This is the first time we hear that there's any land involved at all. And you're actually first in line to, uh, to uh, obtain all of the land that Naomi has because you're a relative. And he, and he says, well, do you want the deal? And he goes, yeah, I, I want the deal. Give me the land. And he goes, oh, pfft. one stipulation. Uh, there's a Moabite woman, Ruth, that would have to be, um, you'd have to marry her. You know, the Moabites that, that follow the false god, uh, Chemosh. Also, uh, there's a bitter old woman that you get in the package deal with that. <laughs> Do you want the deal? And he goes, no, 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 I don't want the deal anymore. Hard pass. He says, it's not worth it. You see, this relative is viewing the deal like a balance sheet. He's seeing Ruth as a problem. Boaz sees her as a princess. He felt like he had to marry Ruth. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth. So Boaz marries Ruth, and by doing so, takes care of these two widows who have lost everything. And Ruth and Boaz conceive and bear a son named Obed, which means he who serves. A story that started with famine ends in fertility. A story that starts with death ends with life. It's beautiful. Obed becomes the grandfather of the greatest of all Hebrew kings. You may have heard of him, King David. And King David eventually has a son down the line who still sits on the throne. You may have heard of him as well. Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. He continues to sit on the throne. I want to invite Noe and the worship band to come up, and we'll close with this. The book of Ruth is a great story. It's a beautiful story. And it's a testimony. Noe talked about this earlier. Uh, our world is filled with biographies. 
And biographies are what people have who don't know God. Testimonies are what people have who do know God. A, a biography is this. I had a great obstacle. I had great suffering, great opposition, but then I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I learned my lesson. I persevered. I pressed forward. I overcame. I saved myself. I fixed my life. I healed my wounds. I slayed my dragons, and I'm my hero, and you can be your own hero too. That's a biography. The book of Ruth is not a biography. It's a testimony. Prodigal church, we don't have biographies. We have testimonies. A biography is about me. A testimony is about God. A biography is about how I saved myself. A testimony is there was no way I was going to save myself. But God showed up. God spoke. God healed. God delivered. God provided. God heard. God answered. God saved me. I'm not the hero. God is. That's a testimony. And a testimony is better than a biography. We're full of testimonies. We always can't see it. We always can't see it through the windshield, but we can see it in the rearview mirror. The book of Ruth is a testimony. In chapter one, it was prayed that Ruth would get a husband. And she does. In chapter two, it was prayed that Boaz would be blessed. And he was. In chapter three, it was prayed that Ruth would be blessed. And she was. And in chapter four, it was prayed that they would have a baby. And they did. We read earlier that it was... Ruth says, you're my kinsman guardian. Some of you in your Bibles might say kinsman redeemer. This is a great theme throughout the book of Ruth. Here's a widow who has nothing, is left empty. And a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer would come in and be able to provide life, sustenance, lineage, protection. This little love story is actually about the big love story. We are Ruth and Naomi, vulnerable, broken, poor, empty, and we need a redeemer. And our redeemer pursues us, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He's a good father. He pursues us. And his name is Jesus. God, I... I'm so thankful for your providence in our lives, the way you move, the things that we see, the things that we don't see. God, you're good. You're good in the midst of all of our famines. God, for those in this place who are going through a famine, it, it might not be food in the table, but it's an emotional emptiness. It's a, God, are you even listening? God, for those people who are going through that, I pray in Jesus' name that they know that they have a God who pursues them. That God, you don't have to, you want to. You desire us, you pursue us in the, to, the, to the ends of the earth. God, you would rather die and go to hell than go to heaven without us. Thank you for your, your pursuit of us. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for the love story we see throughout the scriptures of, of you wooing us, drawing us to your son. So Father, I pray that you would draw us once more. Draw us even more, God. I pray in Jesus' name that we pursue you as you pursue us. God, I pray that we wouldn't make our family decisions based on practical reason alone, but we would seek the son of God. God, I pray that when you call us to repent, that we don't default and retreat instead. God, may we repent, not retreat.
God, I pray that for those who have been feeling sorry for themselves. I pray, God, that they wouldn't mope, but they'd put their hope in you. God, I pray that we would notice the little winks, the little coincidences, the, the little as fate would have it's in our lives. And God, maybe this moment right now, maybe in this church service right now on August 5th, God, maybe right now, it's a wink that you've got us. As fate would have it, we found ourselves in some school theater and God had a word for us. So God, I pray that we'd respond to your great love. God, may we know that you are a good, good father. Elimelech failed as a father. He failed. You never do. You never let us down. So we trust you, God. We sing about your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing and declare the goodness of God as our Father? Oh 
still as you call me, deeper still.